Hello, it's Vikas Pota, Chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course, the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF. With regard to early language development, because that's where learning starts, right? You need to speak, you need to read, you need to understand other people. Other people. And we are happy to have a great expert with us who is not only a linguist and a language scholar, but also a neuroscientist and brings these two worlds together. She uses neuroscience to understand how children develop language skills. Um, and she is at uh, Yale, the Haskins Laboratory, and at the University of Delaware, is also multilingual, so she can do this in Polish or French or English. I hope that's what you're going to do. Or even a fourth one. Uh, so please welcome Kaja Jasinska. So much, Simon. Um, okay, so um, thank you so much for coming. I clicker, thank you. So I want to invite us to think about a world free of illiteracy and to consider what it would take for us to get there. And I want to argue that what we're doing here at this conference, bringing together policymakers and scientists and teachers to exchange ideas in one place, is a really key component of realizing this vision. So like Simone said, I'm actually a uh, cognitive, developmental cognitive neuroscientist. So what that means is I study uh, how the brain develops and how it supports learning. I'm mostly focusing on literacy um, and the development of the building blocks that support literacy. Now, learning to read is um, something that no other species manages to do. This is a uniquely human ability. And part of the reason for that is because reading is really based on language. And I would argue that language is truly uh, a definitive feature of what it means to be a member of this species, right? No other animal comes close to what we do in terms of language ability. And we've had this ability for quite some time, probably at least 600,000 years, but probably a, a lot longer than that. So we've been doing this for a while. And because we've been doing this for a while, our species has a really remarkable ability to acquire any of the over 6,000 languages that are spoken in the world today. Um, and they do so with relative ease. Now, of course, the child cannot anticipate what language they're going to be born into. So their brain has this ability to learn language despite all of the potential variation that's out there. So what that means is basically right around the first birthday, Parents everywhere are excitedly anticipating their child's first word, be they parents in France or in the United States or China or anywhere for that matter. Now, how do we get from this remarkable language ability up through to a reading child, right? Now, language, like I said, is really old in our species. We've been doing this for a very long time. Reading, on the other hand, has probably been around for only about 5,000 years, right? 5,000 years is nothing. It's a tiny sliver of time in the lineage of our, of our species. It's not enough time to learn to do anything. So how does something as ubiquitous as reading take shape in the brain when there's no evolutionary precedent for it whatsoever? Because there isn't. 5,000 years is very, very short. Well, reading has to make use of what's already there. It makes use of existing linguistic and cognitive systems. And all of this um, takes place in the brain. So what does it mean to know um, 
What does it mean to know to, to read? What is it that we know exactly when we know how to read? And how do we support the journey to get there? Well, before you even begin to learn to read, you're already a proficient user of spoken language, which means you know what this animal is in your native language, right? So kids know that the sound pattern k, a, t, assembled together, cat, at least in English, stands in for this animal, right? But when it comes time to learn to read, we have to add in the written form, the orthography, we would call it. So a child will know that this, the letter C-A-T can be sounded out uh, to correspond to the, the, the sound sequence k, a, t, and that also this, this letter sequence stands in for this uh, referent, right? So we've got the meaning, the sound structure, and we've got the written form. And these three elements come together in the brain. So how does this happen? Well, this is what your brain looks like on reading. Say if we took an average adult reader. Now we've got a lot of great tools at our disposal these days, like functional magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI for short, or something I use in my laboratory, which is called functional near-infrared spectroscopy, or FNIRS for short. And this allows us to look at how the brain actually does this, right? So if we took an audience volunteer today and we happened to have an fMRI handy and we had you listening to some words or reading some words while you were in the scanner, this is what your brain would look like. So what I'm showing you is a left hemisphere and right hemisphere view, right? Over by the section which is the blue is the back of the head here, the occipital lobe, which is primarily responsible for vision. And then the other side, you've got the frontal lobe. And one of the things you can see right away is that the left hemisphere is just a lot more involved in this process than the right hemisphere. And you could see that for speech only, we see nice, that would be represented by the green, some nice brain activity right around this temporal lobe, um, but it also includes really large sections of the left hemisphere. But if you're going to be reading words in the scanner, we see a lot of activity on the occipital lobe, which is responsible for vision, which is no surprise because reading is a visual process, so we expect to see some activity there. But one of the really interesting things is this purple area. This is the area of overlap between print and speech. So the regions of the brain that respond to both printed language and to spoken language. And this area is really important because it really moves kids forward. This is a really reliable marker. So we look at six-year-olds, and we put them in a scanner, and we have them listening to words and, and reading words, and we look to see the, the extent of co-activation, meaning what regions in the brain active for both print and speech. Those six-year-olds with more co-activation tend to be better readers when they are age nine. Okay? This language component here is really key because even if we look at younger kids, four years old, the amount of activity they show for language and the extent of connectivity, how well all these regions work together to support language, is a reliable marker of future reading ability one year out. So when you take these four-year-olds and you follow them a year later and measure how well they're doing at the age of five when they're just at the cusp of starting to learn to read, their activity in the brain a year earlier was very predictive of that. So this journey to literacy, this development of the brain, takes place here, right, in a typical classroom, right? So this is a classroom in the United States. Uh, primary school, you see some nice um, you know, pens and, and paper on the children's desks. You've got some books in the background. This is a standard place where kids learn to read, isn't it? Well, more often than that, learning to read looks like this in overcrowded and under-resourced classrooms with kids of all ages in the same grade trying to learn to read. Right? 
But we typically don't think of the journey to literacy taking place here, but it really, really does. And if we think about where in the world um, these classrooms tend to be found, then it's no surprise that our literacy map looks something like this, right? So what I'm showing you here is adult literacy rates. So the darker colors mean higher literacy rates, and the light colors are lower adult literacy rates. And there's clearly a glaring um, uh, issue, a crisis, um, predominantly in Sub-Saharan Africa and, and, and elsewhere. Now, this map might look familiar to a lot of us in this room because almost in reverse, it's the identical, uh, the flip of the map of poverty in the world, right? Poverty is both the cause and consequence of illiteracy because without the resources to support literacy learning in the classroom, kids are gonna fail to learn to read and they do in a lot of these places. And without the ability to learn to read, then you miss out on tremendous uh, economic opportunities. So the, the consequence of this is just more poverty. Now, beyond those challenges, um, a lot of kids find themselves learning to read in a language that they don't actually know, right? This is a map of the linguistic diversity of Sub-Saharan Africa. Now, that's a lot of languages. By comparison, the EU has 24 officially recognized languages and maybe about 60 or so uh, smaller minority and indigenous languages. I'm not counting the uh, immigrant languages that are now in Europe, right? By comparison, Nigeria has over 500 languages, right? So there's kind of an issue of scale here and something that we're often not thinking about. So we really need to consider the role that bilingualism and often biliteracy also has in supporting literacy acquisition. Now, at this point, um, there's overwhelming uh, research on bilingual language and reading development. Beyond the obvious social and economic benefits that are conferred upon a child who knows how to speak more than one language, research from my lab and those of labs, uh, leading labs in this area of research also show that there's a lot of linguistic and cognitive benefits as well. So one of the things that we find is, for one, there's no harm done to a child by introducing them to a second language, right? So bilingualism doesn't cause a problem. Okay. Second, there are some advantages. So if we look at infants who are raised bilingual compared to monolingual peers, they have greater sensitivity to all the sounds of the world's languages, much more so than, than the monolingual kids do. And if we look at primary school kids, this is some of my own research, we find that those kids that are raised bilingual actually outperform their monolingual peers in some linguistic domains, but also in the domains of literacy. And even among kids who might learn a language once they um, start going to school, so say immigrant children who are speaking some language at home but begin learning English when they enroll in school, at first they show some delays in English, kind of expectedly, it's a brand new language for them, they're learning it, but by fourth grade, we no longer see any differences between these two groups. So one of the things we have to consider is when we're thinking about this semantics, the meaning, the, the sound structure, and, and the written form, is that a child might actually be doing this across multiple languages, and that's something that ought to be considered. And this is particularly the case in Cote d'Ivoire, and Ivory Coast is where I uh, do most of my, my work. Cote d'Ivoire has over 60 languages that are spoken, so there's tremendous linguistic diversity here. But its literacy rate is about 53%. So this is youth literacy rate for those between 15 and 24. So this is really uh, quite low. Um, there's been increased primary school enrollment, but despite that fact, literacy rates haven't budged too much, and there's still a tremendous amount of out-of-school children. And even those kids that are enrolled are not always going to school reliably and regularly. Now, 
So if these kids aren't at school, what are they up to? Well, you might have come across some news stories in recent years reporting the really severe problem of child cocoa labor in Cote d'Ivoire. Cote d'Ivoire is the world's leading producer of cocoa. It represents over 40% of global cocoa production, but cocoa farmer income is very, very low, and there's an estimated 1.4 million children between the ages of five and 14 who work in cocoa agriculture. Um, and that includes doing hazardous work like uh, carrying heavy loads, um, using machetes and sharp tools to, to cut the trees, uh, burning the fields, or manipulating chemical products. So this is actually a photo I took of a poster at a school in one of our sites. Um, and the one below is of a, of a boy who's just outside one of the villages we work in, in Adzope, who's carrying a pesticide canister on his head. This is a backpack that um, is typically worn that's got a little spray nozzle so you could spray the, the, the pesticides. And he's got his gum boots on, so he's very clearly heading to um, the plantation for work. And often, this is the kind of reader we're talking about. So we surveyed about 800, over 800 children in first, third, um, and fifth grade across 14 villages in, in Ivory Coast. And we found that more than 40% report working cocoa agriculture. And in some villages, that's well over 50%. And of the kids, we, we sat with each child and we interviewed them and we worked with them for about 90 minutes to two hours. And of these kids that we met with um, that report doing cocoa labor, three in five report being exposed to hazardous work. So this is a really common problem. And these are the conditions under which children are trying to learn to read. We also assessed their literacy development in, the, in this context. So we gave kids, uh, th this is in French, Cote d'Ivoire's main language is French, so we asked them to read 100 French letters in one minute. Now, the average fifth grader only read this many. Fifth grader read this many. The kids from the poorest households only read this many words. And those that report doing any form of child labor, even one activity on the plantation, read this many. Fifth graders, right? And then our whole sample of first, third, and, and uh, fifth graders, uh, more than 20% couldn't read a single letter. Okay. We also had them read uh, words, 50 words. Again, they have got a minute to do it. The average fifth grader only reads half. Okay. Those that come from the poorest 25% of the, the bottom 25% of the poorest households read this many. And if you report doing any child labor, you read even fewer. And in our total sample, more than 40% of kids couldn't read a single word. So we have to think about that for a moment, because if you're in fifth grade and you can't read your words yet, or you don't know your letters, that means that, that there's been an investment in educating you and putting you through primary school for five whole years, and likely more because the repetition rates are so high, without a arriving at any functional literacy. There's only six grades of primary school. You're unlikely to make any gains in that last year, and then you're going to be finished, and you're not going to pass the entrance exams into secondary school, and so your journey to literacy ends right there. So this is how severe this problem is. There is one bit of good news, because if you think about the average fifth grader reading this many, the child laborer and the, the, the child from the impoverished household, those kids that have really good French language skills read this many words. That's a, that's a good sign. But most remarkable for me is those kids with really strong language abilities in their mother tongue not the language they're being educated with, read even more words, okay? So beyond what we can predict from their French language abilities, if we look at their local language, their mother tongue, that has a lot of value and we should be capitalizing on that. And in fact, there is quite a movement now throughout Sub-Saharan Africa to incorporate the local language as a language of instruction. 
Okay. So if we have a group of kids, and within that group only one can read, we really wanted to understand what makes the subset of, of fifth graders that have the skill different. Um, that have the skill, what makes them different? So for that, we turn to neuroimaging because why not? Right. So we uh, have a system called functional neuroinfrared spectroscopy. Here's what this looks like. We arrive at a school. This is a typical Ivorian school. It's the courtyard. We start building our state-of-the-art laboratory, which is a tent, but it's state-of-the-art nonetheless. And we're ready to go in about an hour. Okay? There's no electricity. There's no running water. There's really no infrastructure to support this laboratory. But at this time, in the field of, of neuroimaging, there are more portable tools that are being developed, and originally not even developed with this purpose in mind, but we can use this so that we can study this problem in a place where this research is needed most. So here we've got one of our kids who's uh, wearing the, the cap. What you see on his head is a series of little optodes that emit uh, infrared light onto the head. This is completely safe, it's non-invasive, it doesn't hurt. It's the same kind of infrared light that you would use when, you have a, um, when you're at the hospital and they put a little uh, uh, pulse thing exactly to monitor your oxygen saturation. It's the exact same thing, it's just on a, on a massive scale. And the thing, the key components of this system fit into a suitcase and we travel with this as check luggage. So really there's a great opportunity now to use these, these tools of cognitive neuroscience uh, to address some of these critical problems in really understudied populations. So, I want to think of a, li a little bit about this reading circuit that I showed you a little bit uh, uh, before. And if we took those kids that are in fifth grade, so these are 10, uh, 11, 12 years old, who did reasonably well on our, on our letter reading task. They read at least 60 letters correct. Still not anywhere near age appropriate, but they're doing the best out of the group. And we look to see what their brain activity looked like. And just note here, I'm not actually measuring the back of the head. Uh, we're just measuring kind of the front around. Their circuit looks really nice. It looks exactly like what it ought to look like. We have the same activity in the same regions we expect to. So this is really great. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, if you looked at those kids, fifth graders, again, 10, 11, 12 years old, that read less than half, uh, sorry, le read less than 10 letters correctly in this, in this task, and we looked to see where in their brain they showed greater activity for actually actual uh, red words compared to some comparable visual stimuli, there's nothing. They don't show anything of substance for reading actual meaningful words. But one thing that's really interesting is we've given these uh, kids a bunch of gibberish to read. And you're probably thinking like, what is with these mad scientists having kids read gibberish like that on the screen? What is the purpose of this? Well, this gibberish has got a really technical term. It's called false font. And the reason why it's really interesting for us is because it has all the visual features of letters, but none of the meaning or none of the sound. So you can't read this. And these poor readers, they stare at this and they really try to read it. Right? So what we're seeing in their brain, something that we can't tell from behavior alone because they would fail at, at these tasks, is that their brain is really trying to make sense of print, but does, fails to acknowledge or fails to recognize that this is an actual print, that there's no sounds that can be mapped onto this and there's no meaning to be ma mapped onto this. So what do we do with this information? Well, for one, we can see that the brains of this, these older 10, 11, 12-year-olds really struggle to learn to read. One obvious policy implication of this is make sure that education is of high quality in the early grades. But that's hard to do because the early grades, the first, second, and third grades, tend to be the ones that have more crowding compared to the later grades in primary school because all the kids are in there and they might repeat the grades and so they're there. Um, and two, there is this uh, phenomenon that um, 
the most experienced and most senior teachers tend to teach the higher grades in primary school, and the brand new teachers tend to teach the early grades. So one of the things we might do is switch this around. Um, and I want to tell you how we're leveraging this educational neuroscience for literacy. So right now, we've developed an intervention program that works on um, a mobile phone, on a dumb phone, so not smartphones, something that's really prevalent in these communities. All these families have these kinds of phones. And we've developed a literacy curriculum onto this phone that actually leverages the findings we already had. So it builds on the child's local language, uses that as a way to bootstrap the child into uh, the French reading system. Um, and uh, we're typically in an in a, in a intervention like this. The standard protocol is you assess the child before you start the intervention, and then you um, deploy your intervention, the child finishes, and then you evaluate again. And so you would compare pre to post uh, scores on the literacy assessment, and you would compare this against some control group, and this is your impact evaluation. What we've done here is actually build in the neuroimaging because rather than just be able to ask and answer the question of did this intervention work, yes or no, which is what we, the question we, we typically go for when we're doing something like this, with neuroimaging we can ask, we can go beyond the did it work, yes or no, and we can ask why did it work? Or why didn't it work? Or why did it work for some kids but not others? And did it work by targeting the mechanisms we thought were responsible for the, for the gains that the children either made or didn't make? So there's a role to incorporate this type of um, um, imaging to shed new light onto these really important questions. So these kids really want to know what we're going to do about all of this, right? They're here, they're, they're excitedly anticipating our, our questions. I have a really funny story behind this picture, too, for question time. Um, and the point I want to make is that really we need to do, uh, we need to have science and policy come together. And I want to tell you a little story of how this works, okay? So about two years ago, the Ministry of Education of Cote d'Ivoire, we were, we were meeting with them and we were ex uh, talking about this, this research ideas and they really asked, they said, hey, what is this neuroimaging stuff all about? Like, how does it work? We want to see this. So I thought, okay. So I packed up my, my kit into my suitcase, travel with it in a, in a wheelie bag and decided to do a demonstration for the Ministry of Education in a room quite like this, but uh, quite a lot more people in it. And we had um, one of the representatives from the ministry volunteer to be the participant, so we put this uh, little cap on, and uh, he underwent what I think is the very first uh, public um, politician neuroimaging. Um, <laughs> though probably not the last, maybe something we should try to do more of, just the, just the thought out there. Just to, so we would have an opportunity to uh, exchange some ideas about what this actually is. And I think that a lot of the time, policymakers and scientists certainly don't speak the same languages, and I think creating opportunities exactly like this helps to build that dialogue that is so critical for moving the literacy needle forward. Um, he survived the neuroimaging all while he's here today, not in this room, but uh, around in the conference. Okay. I also want to share with you uh, something that I'm really kind of uh, passionate about and I think is a really important thing to consider. There is a tremendous mismatch between where science happens and where science is needed most, right? Because if we look at the distribution of literacy in the world, there is a clear crisis, but we have a lack of scientists in these countries to actually address this. And so the process is dependent on people from elsewhere coming in and maybe 
uh, uh, doing some of this research, which is neither sustainable nor optimal. And so I think we really need to look at this as an opportunity to create um, science capacity building in low and middle income countries, because there's really no reason why uh, scientists in low and middle income countries and the governments of low and middle income countries cannot be at the forefront of defining what educational neuroscience ought to be. And this is a new field um, with tremendous growth. And I think the, looking at this as an opportunity is a really important thing to do. So when we're thinking about the kind of programming and the kind of research we're doing in various places in the world, we need to build into our budgets and build into our, our, our programs uh, opportunities to train scientists along the way. Okay, and with that, I wanna thank you for your time. So we do have a few minutes for questions, and there is a politician. I have to okay. take it. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Our next one. <laughs> um, I have a political question, actually. Okay. It, it's the following. Um, I'm going to give an example without naming the country. I know a country with 500,000 people only, okay. with 10 native languages, and one international language. And there is a debate in that country whether they should the kids should be taught learning in that international language mm -hmm. that they have and it's official, or they should start with the native languages being given that the majority of them don't have a dictionary, don't have a grammar, don't have mm -hmm. transliteration. So this is a difficult political decision. My hunch is that we should go for directly for the international language because it's more developed without neglecting the other ones. So the question is, will what will be better for kids, not in political terms, but in terms of fluency in reading? Yeah, this is a great question, and this is something that people ask me all the time, parents included, because they want to know when, when do I give my child a second language? When is it safe? When is it too late? When is it too early? Um, so I'm going to tell you about two studies that speak to that. Um, one is from the United States where we directly compared um, simultaneous bilingual education program with Spanish and English, 50% each language um, every single day against a sequential bilingualism program where we started off with a 90% uh, Spanish, so the, the child's mother tongue, 10% English in the first two grades, and then gradually sh shifted over to 50-50 and then beyond. There were pros and cons to both approaches, but overwhelmingly the 50-50 seemed to be the better way to go because we didn't see any negative consequence to their English development by having them have so much um, Spanish throughout rather than fade the, the, the Spanish out. Two, um, the earlier introduce the languages we know, the better. That's the bottom line. So if you're trying to learn a second language at the age of 14, it's really, you're, you're setting yourself up not for success. So the earlier is the better. And even though the science sh shows that, uh, there's very few, uh, if you look at the United States, our second language um, instruction in the classroom doesn't really start till high school which is, goes against all of the evidence. So my recommendations are to include the second language early and not, um, not fret about whether it should be, we should wait till a, a later point. And also the kids are capable of doing two languages at once. There's really no harm done by it. So if you look at a, another example, parents who raise their kids bilingual say mom speaks French and dad speaks Spanish, those kids, if they're getting roughly 50-50% input, they're not at a disadvantage either. 
right? So there's nothing that suggests that the brain is neurally set to learn only one language. In fact, it's so versatile, it's got this amazing ability to learn two at the same time without any consequence. I don't know. <laughs> Oui, okay. <laughs> Bonsoir, Madame Kaya. Je voudrais vous remercier au nom de la Côte d'Ivoire. Je suis Madame Kamara Kandia, la ministre de l'Éducation nationale, de l'enseignement technique et de la formation professionnelle de Côte d'Ivoire. Donc, je voudrais profiter pour remercier Madame Kaya pour, euh, en tout cas, cette étude faite en Côte d'Ivoire, effectivement, sur euh, nos enfants, parce que euh, c'est vrai que, comme dans tout pays, nous avons une frange de nos enfants qui ont du mal à, à lire et à écrire. Euh, C'est vrai, la Côte d'Ivoire est un pays qui a plus de 70 langues euh, en Côte d'Ivoire. Donc, euh, la, la recherche de Mme Kaya nous permet effectivement d'identifier les, les raisons ou les causes pour lesquelles, euh, euh, qui font que ces enfants ont du mal à, à assimiler et à apprendre au même rythme que leurs enfants. Donc, euh, je voudrais très sincèrement la remercier. Et elle a fait une euh, euh, relation entre le travail des enfants et puis euh, le niveau d'apprentissage. Mm -hmm. Effectivement, nous-mêmes, nous avions fait le constat en Côte d'Ivoire, à un moment donné, que effectivement les enfants, dans une partie du pays, avaient des difficultés. Et on avait remarqué que ces enfants, effectivement, euh, allaient à l'école, mais accompagnaient leurs parents dans les plantations et donc euh, avaient des difficultés. Et c'est ainsi que, sachant que cela avait un lien avec le travail des enfants, comme elle-même le sait, nous menons en Côte d'Ivoire une lutte acharnée contre le travail des enfants. Et d'ailleurs, ce programme est piloté par la première dame de Côte d'Ivoire, Mme Dominique Ouattara. Et aujourd'hui, il y a beaucoup d'améliorations dans ce domaine et surtout que nous avons compris aussi que l'une des causes c'était le fait de ne pas avoir d'école dans ces localités, ce qui emmenait les parents à partir dans les plantations avec leurs enfants. Donc nous avons commencé avec des partenaires comme la Fondation, avec des partenaires, nous avons nous-mêmes construit beaucoup de salles de classe pour faire en sorte que ces enfants, au lieu d'aller dans les plantations avec leurs parents, aillent plutôt à l'école. Et nous avons vu l'un dans l'autre, nous avons constaté beaucoup d'améliorations. Mm -hmm. Ce que j'aurais souhaité, c'est de, à la fin de vos, de vos recherches, c'était de savoir euh, l'impact, mais en mm -hmm. termes de pourcentage d'enfants mm -hmm. qui avaient des difficultés et qui, après avoir corrigé les causes pour lesquelles les enfants avaient des difficultés, combien parmi ces enfants ont pu retrouver le rythme normal donc, euh, c'est euh, la seule euh, note que je, je, je relève ici. Mais sinon, c'est dit que l'étude est importante. Mm -hmm. Il est important de savoir les causes pour lesquelles les enfants ont des difficultés, les adresser. Et je suis d'accord avec elle qu'il faut qu'il y ait des études scientifiques pour savoir les raisons euh, pour lesquelles les enfants ont des difficultés d'apprentissage. Je voudrais sincèrement la remercier pour cette étude-là, et dire que nous souhaitons continuer pour faire en sorte que nos enfants, vraiment tous, sachent lire et écrire mm -hmm. en fonction de leur niveau pour pouvoir progresser dans leur cursus scolaire. Donc je vous remercie. Oui.
teachers and research together we think we can really end and actually business bringing it in as well we can really tackle these issues and i'm getting really really bad signs that we get need to get out of here so kaya thank you mm -hmm. so much it was a pleasure having you here great work and uh, thanks to you thanks. yes thank you